That is Herb Alpert and the team of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest in this edition of Fangraphs Audio is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And what follows, as he does every week during his appearances on <laughs> Fangraphs Audio, Dave Cameron analyzes all baseball. Now, I want to say, actually, uh, this is what follows is, is probably one of my favorite episodes with Dave Cameron for a while. Um, of course, with the end of the season, I am particularly happy. I, as someone who does not necessarily care for the playoffs, I enjoy instead the, the ubiquity of the game during the, the regular season. Uh, but Dave Cameron and I actually have a, a pretty great conversation, I think, and, and Dave hits on some really interesting points. We talk about a number of things. First of all, uh, using as an entree Dave's piece from earlier Monday uh, with regard to the Giants and their strength this postseason, which was depth. We discuss players like Marco Scudero and Gregor Blanco, who, uh, if not necessarily making the Giants what they were, certainly contributed uh, in no small part to their World Series championship. We also discuss... Uh, Tim Lincecum and his future, and whether, as a, as a Fangraphs writer Jack Moore suggests, Tim Lincecum might be in for a, a future as a Willie Hernandez from the 1984 Tigers, as a Willie Hernandez-type uh, multi-inning reliever. That's sort of an interesting conversation. We look at what other uh, pitchers out there might actually be appropriate for that sort of role. We also discuss Sergio Romo and a piece that Jeff Sullivan wrote for earlier on Monday as well with regard to Sergio Romo. And uh, his repertoire, you know, maybe actually he's not that bad against left-handers. That's a, that's a possibility. And, of course, uh, as part of this conversation, we look at the at pending uh, free agency five days after the World Series, which, which is uh, Friday or Saturday. Free agents are allowed to begin negotiating with other teams besides the ones that employed them for 2012. We look forward to that and which players perhaps will be signed in the meantime by their clubs, by their present clubs. It is Fangraphs Audio. It features Dave Cameron, our managing editor, and it begins right now. No, not necessarily. I don't know. When do you think? When do you think? Uh, like, I mean, there are a couple of dates, I guess. But when do you when do you sort of think the new season begins? Do you think it begins today? The off season. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Off season, or I mean, is now is it still the end of the 2012 baseball season, or have we moved on to the beginning of the 2013 season? I, I think today is still kind of part of the 20. I think like you you need to at least have the parade. Like, I don't think you can say the season's over uh, before the, the champion has even had a chance to, you know, hold the trophy and look goofy with their beards. Yeah. Um, so I would say the off season starts Friday. What about the what about for Astros fans? When did it, when did the 2013 season start? I don't know, March second. <laughs> when, when did pitchers and catchers report? <laughs> yeah. Although, actually, I think the Astros were good for like a month, right? Or, do, or they were. They were like. Uh, I think there was some. Some note that said like on May 22nd or something, the A's and Astros had the same record. Oh and then from there, the, the A's went like 50 and 20, and the Astros went like three and 100 or something. Yeah, and if I remember, actually, it was not just a, a to- like it was not a total fluke in, in that like I think that their underlying numbers were decent as well for the Astros. Yeah, I mean basically they had Jose Altuve and Jed Lowry hitting the crap out of the ball, and then Jed Lowry got hurt, and Altuve 
regressed a little bit, and they traded away, you know, any decent veteran player they had and replaced them with scrubs. Right. Okay. So you so you you set the new. It, it, I guess it comes in stages because because you're you know there are ways you get excited about the next season. I mean now all the teams for 2013 are zero and zero. That's that's one thing, and you have the opportunity, uh, you know, to have some optimism um, as regards free agency. Right. I mean, I think, uh, and I will stop and pause, by the way, you're maybe the only podcaster in the world who could lead off the day after the World Series with the Houston Astros. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I think, like, free agency starts Saturday. Uh, there's a five-day exclusive negotiating period uh, after the World Series ends, which is basically Monday through Friday. So free agency starts Saturday. I mean, I think you can look at it and say, you know, this isn't a bumper free agent crop, but there's some interesting depth guys there that could be undervalued and could potentially be interesting additions. And I think most teams in baseball, probably besides the Astros, um, could look at this winner and say, you know, if we squint and we look hard and this rookie performs really well and that guy comes back from injury and a couple guys in a career year and we find this one player, all of a sudden we're the Orioles. Right. Well, and that's exactly it. The Orioles are are the team you can look forward uh, you can look at, and it seems like there's one of those teams per year, right? Like I remember, well, it was like four years ago. The the Mariners were were at least above 500 at some point late in the season. Yeah, uh, they won 88 games in 2008, um, and then they were terrible. Again. Yeah, right. <laughs> they were terrible, but they they won those 88 games. They did. It was uh, it, it was one of those things where everything went right, and uh, you know. No. It wasn't sustainable. And, it, you know, for the Orioles fans' sake, I hope that their success is more sustainable than the Mariners was. Uh, there's definitely circumstances where these teams kind of have a one-shot deal where they overperform, they get a little too excited, uh, and they take a significant step back the next season. But then, you know, on, on the other hand, it can also be a young team just taking a step forward. I mean, the 2008 Rays went from being terrible to being really good, and they've been really good ever since. Uh, so. We'll get, we'll get to the Giants in a second. With regard, though, to this free agency period right now, this is the this is the time, um, the five days, as you mentioned, after the World Series, where teams have exclusive, uh, exclusive negotiating uh, uh, rights uh, with the players on their team that will become uh, that are set to become free agents. Uh, question: What historically happens during this period? Do we see do we see resignings? Occasionally, you'll see. Uh, some bigger name guys, but for the most part, if you're five days away from free agency, there's real no, there's no real harm in waiting. <laughs> like you get, if, if you haven't hammered out a negotiation, you're probably not giving your team a home team discount by now. Um, and you know if you're just gonna find for market value, then the team might as well just let you go to go to the, the market and kind of figure out what that is. So um, at this point, you don't usually see a lot of the the big name guys sign. You might see a guy. Um, who was on a team that was making a deep playoff run, uh, you know, decided to stick around. Obviously, the team wasn't going to negotiate with him during the postseason, so this is the kind of their chance to be like, hey, you know, uh, nice job in October. Uh, now that we actually have a chance to talk about it, you want to stick around? Great. Everyone feels good about themselves. Um, so those are the kind of situations where you see a refining before someone gets to free agency. But for the most part, uh, I think this is 137 players uh, are eligible for free agency. As of today, I would imagine, you know, 135, 136 of those will end up becoming free. Is Marcos, were you talking about Marcos Scudero in, when you were talking about the hypothetical player? Yeah, he, he could be one guy you would think of. It's a, a guy who obviously you wouldn't expect that there was a, a ton of demand in in terms of resigning until what he did what he did down the stretch for the Giants. And 
Uh, he's played himself probably into a two-year contract, even at his advanced age, because of what he did. Um, and obviously, you know, I would expect that the Giants will want to bring him back, uh, considering that they're now going to be rolling in champagne and money after winning the World Series. Yeah, that's true. But, but the, the, of course, the real question is, the question that everyone is asking is, uh, what about Joe Panic, Dave Cameron? Uh, I think that's the question that maybe only you and Joe Panic's mother are asking. <laughs> well, I, I like Joe Panic's chances. Uh, all right, so let's talk, let's talk about those Giants. We, we mentioned Scooter. Um, actually, uh, I uh, I took a unique approach today, and I read Fangraphs, the site from which yeah. uh, I, I write, for which you write, which you are, are, of which, in fact, you are the editor, the managing editor. I read uh, pieces by both you and Jeff Sullivan. Um, uh, Jeff's a little bit more specific, uh, looking at specifically at the pitch uh, on which, the fastball on which um, uh, Sergio Romo struck out Miguel Cabrera, which um, is interesting itself. And you uh, you looked at the depth that the Giants had, and, and you proclaimed uh, confidently and, uh, and with use of evidence that the Giants won because of depth. Correct. Yeah, uh, you said uh, probably the Tigers. If you look at the rosters, you say players one through seven. Tigers, not only did they probably beat out the Giants in that regard, but they probably beat out you know uh, most of the other teams in the majors. You know that's Justin Verlander, Miguel Cabrera, uh, Prince Fielder. Um, yeah, you could even say Max Scherzer maybe. I mean, at least on an inning by inning basis. Um, after that, though, the Giants were probably one of the best teams in the league. I mean, is this? A model that we've seen work specifically before is it a model that only worked for the Giants because they were playing the Tigers in this situation? No, I mean I don't think it's a, a situation where it's a, a matchup issue. So I, I mean my feeling on this is that the Atlanta Braves of the mid '90s kind of taught us all a false lesson, right? So like uh, those Braves teams were loaded with pitching depth. Uh, obviously they had Maddox, Glavin, Smoltz. They you know they had Steve Avery and Denny Nagel and like this rotating wheel of four starters. And, you know, Kevin Millwood, they had even good fifth starters uh, in most years. Um, they weren't always the best offensive team, but they, they had a really good depth of starting pitching. And, you know, they would make the playoffs every year, and they would lose in the playoffs every year. And so for the generation of fans who watched the Braves lose in the World Series every year, it kind of became this, uh, you know, I guess we can overuse the word narrative, but it kind of became a little bit of a narrative that uh, depth in the playoffs isn't really what you're looking for. You want a couple of star players. Uh, and your fourth and fifth starters don't matter too much. Um, you want an ace at the front of the rotation, which obviously the Braves had, but that's kind of all they had uh, if you're going to ignore depth. And I think that there's this idea that's developed that, you know, these 25-man rosters without star talent are at a disadvantage when it comes to October and the extra days off give you the ability to, you know, skip starters and kind of rely more heavily on your, your front-end guys. Um, and I think it's interesting that, the you know, the Tigers – have exactly that kind of roster, were considered to be heavy favorites because they had that kind of roster, even though they won fewer games in a worse division. Um, you know, I mean, I don't think there's too much objective evidence that says the Tigers are a better team than the Giants. Uh, the Giants just cleaned their clocks, and yet everyone pretty much expected the, the Tigers to win, and it often games in, in five or six games. So I think uh, there's a mindset um, that kind of favors the Stars and Scrubs approach where, we evaluate October teams based on their top five, six, seven players, and we assume that, you know, guys seven through 25 don't really matter all that much. Um, and I do think that there's a decent amount of evidence that shows that those guys matter. I mean, you know, having Marco Sudero at second base uh, certainly seems an important addition for the Giants. Uh, not having Quinton Berry and Delman Young 
uh, playing regular roles, not having Jose Valverde as their closer. These are, these are real things. And so I know, like, people like to talk about the value of star players, and we get into this in free agency every year when, uh, you know, the dollar for war model is linear, and people don't like the linear linearity of that model, and they think that, you know, a six-win player is more than twice as good as a three, two three-win players. Um, but I, I, I'm not sure it's really true. I think, you know, when you look at the Tigers, would they have been that much worse off if they had, you know, instead of getting Prince Fielder, had they had gone and, you know, gotten a four-win player uh, in another position and then, you know, upgraded the outfield, upgraded their bullpen, uh, kind of spread the love around a little bit so they didn't have so many glaring flaws in the World Series that could be exploited. I'm not sure they were really been all that wor- much worse off. Yeah, you know, for me, the, the, the sort of, and this is sort of what you're speaking to, if there's a player who is the emblem, you know, besides Marcus Scudero, maybe who, you know, was a pretty savvy midseason pickup and, and played very well when he came over to the Giants, if there's a sort of emblematic player for this particular Giants team, it's Gregor Blanco, especially so far as depth is concerned. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he was a minor league free agent. Uh, he played he played pretty well um, in one of the, the winter leagues in the offseason. I, I don't know if, if – uh, the Giants signed him to a minor or major league contract. Whatever they did, it was for close to league minimum. And then he ended it up. It was a minor league deal. It was a minor league deal, right. And then he ends up becoming the, the full-time left fielder after uh, Melky Cabrera has to face a suspension. And, um, you know, I don't know. He's not. He was not dominant necessarily, but he was probably better than Quentin Berry. And, yeah, uh, he was definitely better than Quentin Berry. And he made, uh, for example, he made, a, I think, a notable – uh, like maybe three or four notable plays just in the World Series alone. Right. I, I think like Blanco is kind of this uh, classic case of um, the undervalued skill set that Sangrass has been advocating for a while. And, you know, I in the post I wrote today, I tried to make it uh, clear that, you know, we screwed up on the, the organizational ranking of the Giants front office. Clearly we missed the boat on some things. <laughs> they, were, uh, they did a better job than we gave them credit for. So I didn't want to make the tenor of the post too much about, haha! The Giants winning proves that Fangraphs was right because uh, we, we were pretty wrong about them before the season started. Um, but they did, they won with players that are exactly the kind of players that we've been advocating for for years. I mean, I think if you look at Gregor Blanco and Brandon Crawford and Brandon Belt and Marco Scudero, these are Fangraphs players. Like these are, uh, you know, especially Blanco and Crawford and Scudero. These are low power, um, you know, defensive specialists who are, you know, average to slightly above average players based on their glove work, um, who are, you know, not good offensive players for the most part, uh, but they have value. And these are the kind of players that we've been championing and that war says is better than the public perceptions as they are. And I think, you know, if Tampa Bay or Oakland or Boston had made these same kind of moves, they would have been much more heralded as sabermetric thinking. But because Brian Sabian is not considered to be a, you know, an analytical guy, uh, he didn't get credit for putting together a roster that uh, really Billy Bean would say, yep, that makes a lot of sense. You went out and found value. You found underappreciated guys. You you know, stole Angel Pagan from the Mets. Like, uh, I think if we look at what Brian Sabian actually did in constructing a roster, it was very fan even if we didn't recognize it at the time. So so who was uh, next year's Gregor Blanco? Is it uh, uh, Donnie Murphy? <laughs> Is it... Um, is it Ryan Langerhans or Angel Sanchez or Jason Pretty? 
I know you love Angel, Angel Sanchez, and I think you could find with the Angels the other day. So uh, there's a little synergy there with the names. Uh, oh yeah, that, oh that ma- yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Oh he, oh so he yeah. did sign with the Angels. Interesting. Yeah, I think he signed a minor league deal with the Angels, and I think he's expected to potentially fill in for the Mesa Isturis role because Isturis is a free agent. Um, I actually like Isturis is kind of. Uh, an under-the-radar free agent guy. He's not going to be next year's Gregor Blongo, but he might be next year's Angel Pagan. Not that I expect him to turn in a five-war season, but his turn is a, kind of an interesting utility infielder who can play all three spots, makes a lot of contact. Uh, you know, maybe more next year's Marco Scudero than you know, next year's Angel Pagan, but I, I could see his turn being like a kind of savvy, under-the-radar, uh, bounce-back pickup for someone who, you know, wants a switch-hitting infielder who can play three positions and you know, put the bat on the ball. Well, he never really had a starting role, I guess, right? I mean, he's right. been, he's been, you know, sometimes I guess he was playing third base, but, um, you know, that role was variously filled by, well, I guess not Mark Trumbo. In theory, Mark Trumbo. <laughs> was it Kayaspo who played that position? Yeah, Kayaspo mostly played third. I think it sort of kind of fills into the tweener role that, you know, if you're going to talk about a comparison age of John or Gregor Blanco, I think this is kind of, if I would say that, Fingress has been an advocate of any kind of player, it's the tweener. It's the guy who doesn't profile well enough defensively for an up-the-middle position, and his bat doesn't profile well enough for a corner position, according to the traditional model. So, you know, traditionally, you're supposed to build a team with speed and defense up the middle and power at the corners, and there's these players who fall in the gaps of not being good enough gloves for center field or shortstop, or not being good enough bats for third base or left field, uh, and so they kind of get cast as bench guys, like saying, oh, well, you know, he doesn't do this specific thing well enough to be a starter at any position, so we're just going to turn him into a bench guy. Um, Angel Pagan's more of a bench guy, more than a bench guy. Gregor Blanco, you know, maybe he's not a full-time starter on every championship team, but for this year, he was an above-average regular player. Mason Ristris has been an above-average regular player for the Angels for quite a while. Uh, These guys have value, and I think they get overlooked the most often. It's really kind of the skill set that gets missed the most by major league teams is the guys who are uh, good enough at the things that they're not supposed to be good at uh, in order to fit into any one specific role. Right. So, and let's. I want to look at that word. Actually, you said their role, and I, and I think what you're what you're suggesting here has a lot to do with roles, right? I, I mean, I think in in part, um, it's certainly one part of our efforts at Fangraphs is to maybe fight against roles a little bit, but I think we also at the same time have to acknowledge that roles exist. And so I guess that's my question to you is when you have a player, uh, right, like Gregor Blanco, who, um, you know, is a little bit, has been a bit of a tweener, uh, probably so far as a hitter is concerned, um, it's probably, I don't know, I don't necessarily know what, what Gregor Blanco would do if you gave him a full season in center field. I don't know if he's more, if he, you know, if he profiles more like Angel Pagan or if he's more like a David DeJesus who, you know, would theoretically have some of the physical tools to do that, but is just whatever, for whatever reason, is going to work better in a corner, um, but maybe doesn't have that bat to cover the corner. Um, yeah, I, I mean, do you think it has to do with roles? Do you think we have an idea in our mind what what role a player should play? And then, you know, especially in certain organizations, maybe among GMs, among managers, it's a question of figuring out if a player can succeed without one of those traditional roles. Right. So, I mean, I think there's definitely an idea in our mind of what certain player types are supposed to look like. And I think over the last few years, we've seen a real pushback kind of against this multi-center fielder outfield that's become, you know, somewhat in vogue. I mean, I think, you know, we've seen a bunch of teams 
put a couple of center fielders next to each other and say, you know, I don't really care about the offensive left field as much as I used to. The Yankees said this was Brett Gardner. Obviously, they worked pretty well. Um, but even when Brett Gardner was playing really well, I'm thinking four and five win seasons when he was healthy, there were a decent amount of Yankee fans who were like, screw this speed and defense thing. I want a guy who can hit 50 home runs. And, uh, you know, even like noted sabermetric writers who've really come out against this idea of putting a glove guy in left field, um, you know, someone that's distrusted defensive metrics, others of it, I would say, is just adherence to a, an outdated standard of what a left fielder is supposed to look like. Um, I think with guys like Blanco, you know, their value is kind of lost because they don't look like what left fielders look like when we were growing up. And, um, you know, I think we just need to accept that the game has changed, whether you want to talk about whether it's some steroids or ballparks or, you know, just the nature of the game itself or the value of pitching, whatever it is. Um, you know, there just aren't, you know, guys in the minor leagues who can get 40 home runs anymore. There's, there's no more uh, Ken Phelps hanging out in AAA, not getting chances. Teams have gotten smarter. If you can hit, you can play. Uh, and, you know, I think now we're at a point where there aren't enough good hitters to fill every outfield in baseball with uh, guys who can match 30, 35 home runs. And so teams are adapting and saying, you know what, if I can't go get uh, that kind of classic thumper, middle-of-the-order left fielder, I'm going to get some kind of valuable player. I'm not just going to get a scrub who looks like that guy. I'm just going to go the other way and go get speed and defense, so I'm going to find some value. And, you know, that's what the Giants did with Gregor Blanco this year, and it worked. And that, so I would hope that in our minds uh, the role of a left fielder would stop being about hitting home runs and start being about adding wins to your team. And, you know, we know that you can add wins in ways other than hitting the ball over the wall, and hopefully we can start to recognize that. Let's talk about roles. Also with regard to the Giants, um, one of the – probably more notable developments that occurred throughout, uh, in particular, the, the World Series, but it happened through all uh, most of the playoffs, was uh, Tim Lincecum in the role of sort of multi-inning mid-game stopper, I guess. I, uh, I, t- I was talking with Jackie Moore yesterday. We watched Game 4 uh, together, uh, Game 4 of the World Series, and uh, Jackie was advocating uh, on behalf of an idea, which was maybe, uh, what about Tim Lincecum in the role of a sort of Willie Hernandez, 1984 Detroit Tigers, uber relief pitcher type? Now, of course, Willie Hernandez was only that guy for one year. Who knows how long Tim Lincecum would be? And I'm not sure that Jackie's saying this has to happen, but he's saying it's a curious idea. I'm I, I'm curious as to as to how you feel about something like that for Tim Lincecum going forward. Yeah, and I think for next year, uh, given that he's going to make $22 million, the Giants are almost obligated to see if he can go back in the rotation and, and start again. Uh, you know, at that kind of salary, uh, especially in the final year of his contract, to put him in a new role uh, is a little bit unfair. And so to say to Linscombe, hey, look, this is your walk here. This is, you know, your chance to prove that 2012 was a fluke and that you're the Tim Linscombe of old and you're going to go get a big paycheck. Uh, but we're going to take that away from you, and we're going to make you do something different than you've ever done before, and we're going to limit your innings, and we're going to make you pitch out of the bullpen. I, I just don't think it's tenable. So um, I think it's an interesting idea for the end of Linscombe's career, or at least when it's been decided that he's no longer an effective starting pitcher. I, I don't think it's going to work next year. Um, but I do think in terms of uh, long-term bullpen shifts, I wouldn't be surprised if we got back to taking – marginal starters and turning them into 100-inning relievers. I mean, I, you know, I think I wrote a post about this on Pangraphs last year uh, when there was all this talk about the Braves overusing their bullpen. 
it wasn't that long ago that a reliever throwing a hundred innings wasn't all that weird. Uh, you know, five, six, seven years ago, there were guys doing it. Uh, they don't necessarily have long careers, so you're, you're probably going to burn through them. But if you've got a guy who's a, um, number four, number five starter type, uh, you know, maybe a win, two wins above replacement as a starter, um, and not, not a super valuable guy in October, um, and you can shift that into, you know, 90 or 100 high leverage innings spaced out across 70 or 80 appearances during the regular season, you can probably get a similar or maybe even better uh, value for your your dollar by making him into that kind of multi-inning relief face. Um, and, you know, there are some guys who, you know, obviously just respond to pitching out of the bullpen better. Their, their velocity spikes a lot. Um, you know, we've seen a decent amount of... Uh, uh, these guys where they, they go to the bullpen and all of a sudden they start throwing 100 miles an hour after they threw 91 as a starter. I think there are probably more of these guys out there than we think who, you know, you look at it and say, well, they're not really anything more than just an inning reader. If you put them in a two- or three-inning role, they might be a, a pretty useful piece of the team and not just in October. So I wouldn't be shocked if this is something we see kind of evolve into something that gets tried in, you know, the next few five years or so. But I think for Timlin to come in 2013, it's not going to work. Right. So, so what I hear you saying is perhaps maybe this is something where um, you, you take a starter or, or a guy who's not as succeeding in a starting role, and and yet you look at him and you say, well, he has stuff. He has he has the parts that you would think would fit into a role like this. Let's try him in maybe more of an extended role. I mean, is this something that you could see? Uh, you know, that if if Joe Nathan, if we go back to where, because Joe Nathan was pretty miserable as a starter, right? Yeah. And yet he was fantastic in this, uh, um, you know, high leverage relief role. Like, is this a, is, is Joe Nathan, is that, is that version of Joe Nathan from whenever he was pitching for the Giants 10 years ago? Is that the sort of player you try it with? Maybe. I mean, I think for a modern version, I would probably look at Tommy Hunter in Baltimore. So, you know, we wrote about this when the Orioles were making their run. He was, you know, 88 to 92 with a lot of cutters as a starter. And he was a, you know, pitch to contact back end guy who you'd kind of be okay with as your fifth starter. Then moved to the bullpen, he was 96 to 100, and he struck everybody out. <laughs> uh, you know, it was a drastic change. It wasn't just a little bit of a velocity bump. He strapped to the cutter, he went to a four-team fastball, he started pitching up in the zone, and started getting strikeouts. And he basically overhauled himself because of the role change. He's a guy who's shown he can throw 200 in a year with no problem. So this isn't an injury concern guy. Uh, if I'm the Orioles and you already have, you know, Jim Johnson as your closer, uh, maybe you look at Tommy Hunter next year and say, well, let's, let's see what he can do in two or three innings since instead of just turning him into a classic setup man. Maybe you say, you know, we've got this guy who we know gets a significant velocity boost in a in a shorter role but also has the endurance to go 30 pitches at a time. Maybe instead of just turning him into Jim Johnson's setup guy, maybe we turn him into this 80, 90, 100 inning relief ace and see what happens. I think it would be uh, an interesting experiment, Phil. You know, you know what's another team that uh, just to hear you talk about. It, I'm not saying this is the premier team, but I was reminded as you were, uh, you know, maybe talking about Tommy Hunter in Baltimore is also um, the St. Louis Cardinals. They they seem to have a pretty decent um, core returning uh, among starting pitchers, but we know that they also have uh, Shelby Shelby Miller, Joe Kelly, and Trevor Rosenthal. All three of those guys. Um, and it, you know, it's likely, I'm not saying definite, but it's likely that, um, not all three of those guys will start the season in the rotation. Certainly, um, Joe Kelly. But Joe Kelly, I think, is also one of those players whose uh, velocity increased more than you might have expected in a relief role. 
Right, and Kelly, I think the problem with him is you're not super comfortable with him against left-handers. I mean, he's a low-arm slot sinker slider guy, um, which is you know kind of a classic uh, struggles versus lefties uh, skill set. And he has throughout his entire professional career, majors and minors, been lit up by left-handers. So uh, Kelly, I don't know if it's good of a matchup. I think what you really want is uh, a guy who has a you know either a changeup or a splitter or a good curveball, something that works against opposite-handed hitters. So that when you use them for multiple innings, you're not really affected by the platoon splits that much. Um, in, in essence, you almost want a guy who has the skill set to be a closer because you want. This is the same basic idea as you want a closer is to not have to you know worry if you bring him in against three straight lefties that he's going to get lit up, kind of like Jose Valverde would. Um, but say okay, instead of making him a closer, if I already have a closer, you know the next best thing might not be eighth inning guy, and the next best thing is sixth seventh inning guy. And um, you know I think it would take a change in approach. Like right now, there's kind of a succession where, you know, the eighth inning guy is the apprentice for the ninth inning guy, and when the ninth inning guy gets hurt, the eighth inning guy moves up and everybody moves up. You know, to say that the sixth, seventh inning guy is now your second best reliever instead of the eighth inning guy would take a mindset change, but that's essentially what Bruce Bochy did uh, in the playoffs. I mean, his second best reliever was Tim Lithicum after Sergio Romo, and he used him in the sixth and seventh innings. He didn't use him in the eighth. So I think that we know that people can accept this mindset in October the question of whether they can accept it in April through September. Okay. Uh, also with regard to that uh, Giants bullpen, I just want to make sure we hit this. The, um, Jeff Sullivan, like I say, wrote an article uh, today about that fastball that Miguel Cabrera threw. And, and, you know, it's curious about this. It's not just that fastball that Miguel Cabrera threw, but the, the plate appearance before that, uh, Sergio Romo faced a lefty in Don Kelly, who clearly uh, is not the most formidable hitter in the major leagues and also, you know, was probably suffering from whatever the pinch hit penalty is, or maybe, you know, more than the pinch hit penalty. Uh, still, uh, Romo got, Romo struck Kelly out. He struck out the entire side. In fact, uh, he got Kelly out um, and he got him out with two of these sort of weird two seamers he's throwing. And uh, this, that was sort of a revelation itself for me. Of course, uh, I mean, how much of the playoffs did I really watch? But uh, is that, is, was that a new pitch? Was that a new pitch for Romo, or is this just something that he hasn't had to use a lot because he's mostly facing right-handers? Yeah, so last year the Giants were really conservative with their usage. I think he only threw like 40 innings on the season, and like 44 of them were against right-handers. I mean, he was basically a right-handed specialist last year. When Brian Wilson went down and they kind of went to this closer-by-committee thing and then realized that Romo's actually okay against lefties, uh, they expanded his role, and he increased his use of the two-seamer, mainly because he was now facing more left-handers than he had previously. Um, so this wasn't a new pitch for him, but I think it's a, the frequency of how he's thrown it has adapted based on the hitters he's facing. And now that he's just you know been anointed the ninth-inning guy, and he has to face left-handers, he's realized that he can't just be all sliders all the time, like he does against right-handers. Um, and the two-seamer, I think, is... You know, Jeff kind of nailed it on, on the nose. That that pitch is a deception pitch. It's not a great pitch in and of itself. I know Giants fans talking about how it looks exactly like the slider. It just bends the other way. Uh, if, if Romo threw that pitch half the time, it would get destroyed. <laughs> like uh, The pitch he threw to Cabrera was 89 at the belt down the middle, uh, tailing back into his wheelhouse. If Miguel Cabrera swings, that ball goes really, really far. Um, it's not exactly Tim Wakefield's fastball, but it might be the closest thing we have to it from a non-knuckleballer. And I think it's really interesting that Romo's essentially figured out how to pitch this specific pitch um, in a way that hitters won't swing at it. And, uh, you know, I think that's really the key. Is we've seen with big curveballs, the 12-6 curve gets a lot of called strikes because hitters just don't think it's going to be a strike or they're not expecting it. Uh, it's not what they're looking for. 
guys who feature a big 12-6 curveball uh, can throw it, you know, first pitch and get a head 0-1. They can throw it 3-0 and get a, and get a called strike when most guys would throw a 3-0 fastball. That's basically what Romo's pitch is. It's this unexpected meatball that ends up over the middle of the plate that is so surprising that hitters don't swing, and it works because of the effectiveness of the slider. I mean, we, we hear a lot about pitching off your fastball and stuff, your off-speed stuff. This is just the exact opposite. Romo pitches off and slider instead of the fastball. That's not really something a starter can do, though, certainly. Probably not. I mean, I think if Sergio Romo had to face a lineup full of left-handers, uh, he would see some significant diminishing returns because now all of a sudden he's throwing a fastball a lot and hitters are seeing it a lot and they're uh, getting an idea of where it's going to be and what he's got. And so I think that this is a pitch that can work, you know, two, three, four times a game when you're facing a hitter once. You know, if you're having to go at uh, hitters multiple times in a game um, and, you know, five, six, seven left-handers in a row, the element of surprise is out the window at that point. Okay, uh, I just want to note, uh, or uh, kind of ask a question. Uh, a thing I saw recently, um, in, I, I don't know if this, if this is a, if Sergio Romo is part of the segue or not, but Sergio Romo is certainly a case of a relief pitcher who, you know, has not been on the, the radar, you know, two years ago or three years ago was not necessarily on the radar as, as a relief ace and is now, you know, the closing, uh, the, the closer for the World Series team, the World Series championship team. Um, yeah, I was I was looking. Uh, you know, we're doing these this contract crowdsourcing at uh, FanGraphs now. The last couple of weeks, and we're uh, we'll be ending Wednesday. It looks like. Um, uh, Rafael Soriano, who signed what was probably uh, an exorbitant contract at the time, what two years ago was it? Uh, three years, thirty six million or something like that for a setup yeah. setup guy, um, is now considering. Opting out, or it appears as though he's considering at least, I don't know if it's posturing or not, uh, on the part of Scott Boris's agent, considering opting out of his contract so that he could get another multi-year deal. Uh, w- well, meanwhile, you have guys like Sergio Romo uh, and, and players of that ilk, uh, certainly relief pitchers who kind of came out of nowhere uh, to you know provide valuable innings for their teams. Um, I'm curious, do, do, you, do you see Rafael Soriano – uh, do you see him making that sort of money on the open market? So I think he's he's going to opt out and he's going to get a multi-year deal, um, but he's going to sacrifice the annual average value in order to do it. So like, I think he's under contract for like 12 million or 13 million for next year. He's not going to get that on a multi-year deal. Uh, he's not going to get the 336 that he got again. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if he got 321 or 324, uh, where he took you know a significant pay cut for 2013 in order to get two additional years. I think that's kind of the um, what teams are comfortable with, with as far as closers are right now. I know Jonathan Papelbon got that uh, deal from the Phillies last year, but the Phillies are a little bit of an outlier in terms of uh, how they value players. I think most teams have come around to the fact that you don't have to overpay for a closer. Um, so I think Soriano is going to end up with a three-year deal for around you know eight, nine, ten million a year, uh, which in his mind is probably better than one, one at twelve. Okay, yeah, that's all I was concerned about. Um... I, I think you've done your duty. Although I will, I will ask you: Is this a uh, this hurricane? Is this affecting you? Uh, it's windy here, but I'm pretty far inland. I'm a couple hundred miles from the coast, so uh, I know that Sandy is happening. It's cloudy. It's a little kind of rainy, but uh, I'm in no way in any kind of danger. I'm not going to lose power. Um, you know, as far as people on the east coast go, uh, I'm in an enviable position. Yeah. So is this because I, uh, I I'm always a little bit skeptical when. Uh, these sorts of weather events are called for because it, it always seems as though the um, 
the media outlets that are reporting them are incentivized to make them seem as terrible as possible. Uh, is this uh, is this actually that bad? Or, I understand you're not a meteorologist at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, but this is the end of the podcast. What do you want me to do? Uh, yeah, so I, I mean, I think my wife has a similar. She's from upstate New York. She kind of has a similar attitude that you do. Is oh, it's not a big deal. They're just playing it up for TV. To me, I don't, I don't think that's really true. I think there's legitimate concern that this could be. Um, you know, Hurricane Katrina for New York. Not, you, know, you hope it's not that bad. Obviously, Katrina was one of the most devastating storms in the history of the world. Right. And, you know, long-lasting damage for New Orleans. You don't want to see that ever happen again. Uh, but there's, you know, there's uh, evidence of New York getting significant flooding in 1935 from, I believe, it was Hurricane Donna. Uh, when you saw, you know, the World Trade Center uh, was basically, you know, three, four, five feet underwater at that point. Um, you know, if that happens again... We're talking a massive city population that could be shut down for weeks and could have a huge impact on the city. So, um, you know, I think we're hoping that doesn't happen, but I don't know that I agree that meteorologists are overhyping this for the sake of ratings. I think they're legitimately concerned that if people don't take this seriously, they could die. Oh. Well, there you go. Yeah, I hope they don't die. It's a happy way to end the podcast. Like yeah, a, well, I don't want any. Well, you're the one who's always setting people on fire with your true. words. Yeah. Um, yeah, no I don't want well, to. I don't want anyone to die. Right. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. I guess I'm just uh, skeptical. But uh, listen, if it's serious, I, you know, I hope uh, I hope people uh, take care of themselves. Yeah. I, the one thing, you know, I have a cousin who lives in New York City, and uh, he's actually a huge Giants fan. So we've been corresponding a lot lately. Um, and uh, he lives basically right on the line of what they consider to be Zone A, which is the mandatory evacuation zone. And we were joking around this morning. He's like, uh, you know. I'm in the line of Zone B, which is kind of this random line. Do you think the wave's going to get to Zone B and decide, ah, we've gone far enough, we have to turn around because this is Zone B? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I do think that it's uh, a little interesting how random, uh, you know, I'm sure that there's some scientific thought behind, you know, where the evacuation points lie, but, um, you know, we don't really know how far the waves are going to go. And it seems like to me, if you if you can see Zone A from your house, maybe, maybe you should go away. Yeah. Oh yeah, now I see on uh, weather.com there's a there's a part of the there's action uh, and then um, and there's a part that's being alerted, right? So if you are in a certain place and it's pretty uh, it's all the way from Cap Hatteras, is that how you say that? Cape Cape Hatteras. Cape Hatteras, sorry, sorry, Cape Hatteras up to Boston. You need to take yeah. action and all the way west to Pittsburgh and Syracuse. Pittsburgh Pittsburgh yeah. is really far away. And I don't know if you, so if you haven't seen this, uh, I don't know, the Google for like satellite image of Hurricane Sandy, there's one going around Facebook and Twitter right now where it shows like the satellite image of the storm and it literally covers up the entire east coast from Virginia all the way up to Canada and then as far over as like Michigan. Really? Yeah, this is like the storm is the size of the eastern half of the United States. Well, that doesn't seem good. Yeah, right. <laughs> There's a reason that people are freaking out. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's hard to... I'll, tr- I'll try and get an image here. Um, yeah, look at that. 98, 90, Sandy and 98... Okay, uh, yeah, so uh, I guess I'll do a little bit of that. Well, let's say goodbye uh, to you and uh, uh, for now. Stay, stay on for a second, of course, for some uh, tea and conversation. But until then, uh, that has been uh, th- uh, Dave Cameron. Thank you, Dave Cameron. Thanks for having me. All right, that is... Dave Cameron, I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.